The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. We list each of the programs that are available and each of the drug classes and which specific agents are actually available. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call we discuss an article titled Evidence-Based Cardiovascular Disease Medicines, Availability in Low-Cost Generic Drug Programs in the United States. The senior author of the paper, Cynthia Jakovicus, uh, joins us to discuss the paper. She is an associate professor in the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation and senior uh, adjunct scientist at the Institute for Clinical Evaluation Sciences in Toronto, Canada. We hope that you find this podcast educational. Cynthia, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. I was delighted with the study that you and your colleagues wrote about low-cost generics for cardiovascular disease. And I'm going to make the assumption that we don't have to go over time and again that it's not just cardiovascular disease. This is just what you studied. So if you could just start out by telling us how you and your colleagues decided to do this study. Yes, well, thank you so much for your uh, interest in uh, our study and, uh, and in this topic. I certainly have a big passion for this area. I did a study with uh, some colleagues about a decade ago where we only looked at the statins and what was available for statins on the low-cost generic programs available at that time and saw some variability. And a lot of people are not aware that there are these low-cost generic programs out there. And more recently, there has been an increased interest because of Mark Cuban's cost-plus drug you know, program and company. So that has generated some more renewed interest in this area. But certainly there is the concern with rising drug costs, and we studied cardiovascular drugs, but certainly this is across many disease states that there are patients who have difficulty affording medications, despite the fact that they even have insurance or some patients don't have insurance. So we wanted to really see what role that these low-cost generic programs can play to assist patients, especially those socioeconomically disadvantaged patients who, you know, are struggling with healthcare and prescription drug costs to see how they could help and play a role to improve access to generic medications for treating very common cardiovascular conditions. 
Well, I think this is admirable. And uh, one of the things we often say is, I don't care how good a drug is, if the patient can't afford to take it, then it's just not really not a very good drug. Mm-hmm. So let's start just by framing this for people. Uh, you looked at six different cardiovascular conditions, and maybe you could just go over what classes of drugs you were looking for. So atrial fibrillation is the first one. Yes. So we did use sort of clinical framework for each of the six conditions that we um, evaluated. So for atrial fibrillation, we grouped it into three groupings of anticoagulants and then rate control agents, specifically with rate control, looking at beta blockers, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers being bropamil and deltiazem, uh, and digoxin. And then for antiarrhythmics, class 1C and um, class 3 antiarrhythmic agents. And then for anticoagulants, we considered warfarin and DOAX, although again, recognizing that DOAX are brand name, and these are generic programs we're evaluating. So we had these in our frameworks, but some of the medications we didn't expect to be covered by the plans or programs because they are specifically generic drug programs. Okay. And then the the second group is one that I deal with as a hospitalist all the time is heart failure. And maybe you could go over those and and some of the issues with those. Yes. So with with heart failure, we generally are looked at the core guideline directed medical therapy. So GDMT for, um, for heart failure. So, you know, beta blockers and then ACE inhibitors, ARBs and, um, ARNIs or Secubitril Valsartan, um, as sort of the one other core therapy, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists such as spironolactone or a plerinone. Um, and then SGLT2 inhibitors. So those are some of the core therapies. We also evaluated um, hydralazine and nitrates, so whether that combination was available, as well as um, loop diuretics, just more for symptomatic therapy. And recognizing that hydralazine nitrates is only in selected patients, so it's not necessarily a core therapy. So in terms of some of these, again, some of these medications are brand name medications, such as uh, Secubitril Valsartan or Entresto, as well as the SGLT2 inhibitors. So again, we didn't necessarily expect those to be available, even though those do form a core of heart failure therapy. So again, automatically, we recognize that these plans are going to be problematic in providing all of the core therapies because they're focused on generic medications. Okay, the the third category was hyperlipidemia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we specifically focused on this one really on the LDL lowering therapies, uh, primarily, um, again, assessing particularly high intensity statins because many conditions require that, but we also assessed low intensity and um, then also azetamide. Um, we didn't include some of the other lipid-lowering therapies that are maybe used less and that are also brand name. We didn't assess PCSK9 inhibitors or um, icosapentethyl. Yeah. And then other things like fish oil that are available mostly over the counter, sort of generic fish oils, like people mostly buy those just without a prescription. 
And hypertension, I don't think we need to go over it because it it, it overlaps with the heart failure medicines uh, so much. Post-ACS uh, uh, secondary prevention, we already had the statins, the beta blockers, the ACE inhibitors, the ARBs and the MRAs. So it's really the antiplatelet drugs is, is where you were looking. Yes, yes, specifically. Yeah, the P2I12 inhibitor antiplatelets, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and then in stable angina, it's... Again, so many of these are similar, so mm-hmm. many of the drugs uh, car- carry over to several different categories. Yeah, the only different ones would be sublingual nitroglycerin, which is a core therapy right. for stable angina, and then renolazine, which is specifically um, right. the uh, anti-anginal. Yeah. Right. So that's sort of the framework. Uh, we, yes. we have these six conditions that are quite common. Many of our patients have at least one of these. There's so much hypertension that uh, that becomes uh, very uh, important. You didn't list MRAs in the hypertension category. I wonder why, since they are considered the class to use if you have resistant hypertension. So we did debate on whether to include some other agents um, in these categories. Um, So for hypertension, we did not include uh, MRAs, but but we could have, but we did not specifically assess that. One could look at the coverage in other classes just to yeah. see of the availability. And we also didn't look at other things like we debated, should we include, you know, methyl dopa or something like that for specific, you know, populations. Right. But again, we just, we didn't include all of these. Yeah. Okay. So we have all, we have all of these drugs we're going to look for, mm-hmm. and then we're, we want to know, can people really get low-cost generic medications? Maybe mm-hmm. you can talk a bit about what uh, you label as the LCGPs or the low-cost uh, generic providers and uh, how you picked those. And then we can sort of talk about how you evaluated each, each of these uh, programs. So we basically picked these um, yeah, LCGPs or low-cost generic programs with examining pharmacies that were in the United States, first of all, and they had to have more than one pharmacy, so it couldn't just be one pharmacy. We evaluated um, a couple sources. There are sources that lists different pharmacies that are available and their total prescription revenue, sales volumes, uh, number of pharmacists employed. So we looked at many of the larger programs And we included ones that did have a publicly available low-cost generic program and not using the prescription. So there are some of the other prescription uh, coupon programs such as GoodRx and other programs like that. So we did not assess that or needy meds. There's a few of those other ones. So we didn't assess those at all. We specifically assessed the low-cost generic programs some of them do have some enrollment fees. So we did include ones that had fees or didn't have fees, but they were just publicly available. And we examined, again, some of the larger ones, and they had to have more than one pharmacy. And they could be national or they could be regional. So um, any of those were uh, were an option. And we, when we looked at all of those, we found that there was 19 in total of these programs available throughout the US. And then we did examine how many were available by state. 
just to see the geographic distribution and if there is availability of these in all states. And we did find that every state had at least three of these programs available. And then some states had as many as eight. So there was, again, some states that had more um, availability and, and choice of these different programs as well. And in, in looking through the table, uh, the only, it looks like there's only one provider that uh, is available in all 50 states, and that was uh, Mark Cuban. Yes, yes, correct. Yes, exactly. So his is the only one that is available. It is an online only program, but it is available Yeah, in every state. After you evaluate them, could you sort of summarize the gist of this? And I highly recommend that uh, if you're in primary care or in hospital medicine and you're prescribing these drugs to people who uh, don't have insurance coverage for their medications, that you take advantage of the tables in this article, which are absolutely brilliant, to help you figure out where you can tell your patients to get their medicines so they can actually take them. Yeah, thank you for uh, for pointing that out. Um, we did provide and prepare many different tables that would be very helpful as a resource um, for clinicians when they're considering patients that might need these. We have the list of the programs available. We have their websites. We also have in our supplement which states they are available in. So whatever state you're in, you could see which programs are actually available. Um, so you can start with that. And then for every condition, we list each of the programs that are available and each of the drug classes and which specific agents are actually available. So, for example, in AFib, we state for, say, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, there's diltiazem and veraptamol, which ones have one of them, which ones have both of them, which ones have neither. So you can see all the details of exactly what is available that could help with uh, looking at availability and, and assisting patients. It was sort of fascinating to me that almost nothing hits 100%. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that you really have to shop around to find the, the best place. On mm -hmm. the other hand, it seems like if you had to go to one place that Mark Cuban had a little bit broader coverage than uh, than some of the others, but I'm sure that there's some exceptions there of uh, things. He's the only one who covers the DOAC. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, and since ma many of us like to use DOACs for people with AFib, that's really remarkable. It's also remarkable of how many really important drugs are rarely covered in low-cost programs. Maybe you could point out some of those. So, yeah, in terms of availability, yes, Mark Cuban has the broadest kind of availability and breadth um, for any of the, the disease states. And um, although it doesn't cover everything, and sometimes, again, it covers DOACs, but it's not as inexpensive as some of the others that are $4 or $10, you know, a month. They're, they're a, a lot cheaper. So some of the things are covered, but they are um, a higher cost. Mm -hmm. And again, it does, it does change. I'm not going to quote what the cost is today, but it's not $4 or $10 for sure. But the availability is there. And um, so, yeah, we were surprised at some 
drugs that were not as available. And what I want to point out, which is very curious, is sublingual nitroglycerin. So only Costco actually covered that. Costco only covers authorized generics, so so generics that are made by brand name uh, companies. So that's the only one that actually covers sublingual nitroglycerin. It's a drug that's been around for many decades and decades. So it's it's not a new medication. It's not outrageously expensive. At least the sublingual tablet um, is is generally not. So it was very curious whether. These programs just don't think patients need it or are interested in getting it, but it is something that all patients who have chronic stable angina should have with them or post-ACS as well. So it is something that's interesting. And I would hope with some of this that these programs will see our um results and do a self-assessment to see where they can improve. Certainly, um, each of the programs has room for improvement. And even such as Mark Cuban, that could add sublingual nitroglycerin, that would be easy for them to add and, again, be a reasonable cost. So um, I hope that the awareness of this assessment can improve the formularies of these plans and um, increase availability of some of these other types of medications. I'm going to bring up one other one that really struck me, and Mm -hmm. that is ACE inhibitors are widely available. Yes. Uh, ARBs are less widely available, yet most physicians I know are leaning towards ARBs because of less side effects than ACE inhibitors. They're both generic. They've been Mm -hmm. around for a long time. I was sort of shocked that uh, they had not taken up ARBs as aggressively as they took up ACE inhibitors. Yes, this was another one that was interesting because ARBs are pretty widely used. Uh, again, it's sometimes hard to know the rationale, but it did seem to be pretty consistently um, across many of the of the programs. So it wasn't just one or two that there was less availability. It could be, again, ACE inhibitors are older, they had the original evidence, so they had more of the foundation of evidence, and then ARBs came in and are as good generally as ACE inhibitors and certainly more convenient, but maybe not always better in some circumstances. So um, it's possible because they came in later and were brand name later um, than um, ACE inhibitors, it's just a, a sort of legacy decision. But um, yeah, that is an area where they are generic, they would be a reasonable cost, and that could be improved. And especially the choice as well, such as for heart failure, Losartan was, you know, the main ARB available, and that's not one we especially use in heart failure. There's others that have more evidence and perhaps can be added to some of these formularies such as candesartin or valsartin. So um, some of the availability and choice was definitely less in the ARBs. So what is your advice to practicing physicians when dealing with people who uh, do have this challenge? Certainly the data that you've published, and I assume that they should inquire uh, if they're taking care of people with other diseases. Uh, Diabetes is not mentioned here. And certainly there are a lot of people with type two diabetes and some of the medications are generic and we don't, we don't have data on that because that wasn't the goal of this paper. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but but w- what's your final uh, recommendation to uh, practicing physicians about using low-cost generics? So I think the first thing is just to find out and ask patients and inquire about whether they are having any sort of healthcare financial challenges. So I think there is not necessarily an awareness of that and patients might be reluctant to bring it up. Some are fine and they bring it up readily, but some do not bring it up. And so I think even asking that and patients who have insurance, just because they have insurance doesn't mean that they can necessarily afford their medications either between the co-insurance and the co-pays, et cetera. Um, especially at the beginning of the year, they may also have challenges. So we can't assume just because someone has um, insurance that they wouldn't have these uh, barriers. So I think that's the first thing is asking them and then letting them know the, um, the availability of these programs. I don't see a lot of advertising for these, even though such as, you know, Walmart, Walgreens, some of these programs that are available in many different states as well, I don't see advertisements for their low-cost generic programs, which is interesting. So I think increasing the awareness, letting patients know that this is an option for them, that they might not be able to get all of their medications there, but that they can get some of them there, and it might overall decrease their financial burden. So I think that's the biggest thing is to increase the awareness be aware of the variability. But again, when patients are going to fill their prescriptions, not just abandoning them and saying, oh, I can't afford this, seeing what the other options are, talking to the pharmacist there and seeing, do you have a low cost plan or is there even a cash price where they can get something so they don't have to abandon their prescriptions and and can get their medications more readily available? Well, Cynthia, thank you so much uh, for doing the study and for explaining the study. Uh, Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for your interest in it. I hope this does help patients as well as physicians and all other providers in terms of increasing the access to cardiovascular medications. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This interesting article discusses the availability of low-cost generic drugs for six cardiovascular diseases in the United States. What's very interesting about this study is how inconsistent these programs are in which low-cost generics they provide. This article outlines in great depth what drugs are available and under which of 18 different programs they are available. This is a constant problem for physicians who are trying to provide the best possible care for their patients with medications, and yet the patient is living on a low salary uh, and has no uh, insurance to pay for medications. Thus, the only reasonable option is low-cost generics. We hope this article And the tables in the article provide you an opportunity to do a better job of helping your patients get medications that really will improve their quality and quantity of life. Thank you for listening to our podcast.
Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.